Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, C4. Good to see everyone here today, and a warm welcome to those who are physically here, but also those who will be watching online and listening this week. A warm welcome to you as well. We're glad you can join us that way. For centuries, uh, philosophers and scientists argued over the nature of light. Some claimed that light behaves uh, as a wave, uh, much like a sound does and travels through space as a wave. Others disagreed, saying that light uh, you know, behaved like a stream of particles that emanated from a source. Now, when tested as a wave, light seemed to act like a wave. But when tested as a particle, light also seemed to act like a particle. And so people found themselves in opposing camps, each trying to disprove the other. The ones who were favorable to light being a wave, they argued around that. And the ones who uh, favored light being a particle, they encamped there. And the two sides just kind of opposed each other. And then in 1905 a relative unknown who worked as a patent examiner during the day, but who spent his evenings trying to unravel some of the world's great mysteries, published an article in a physics journal that actually changed everything. Albert Einstein put forward the idea that light is both a wave and a particle. And, and his, his theory made absolutely no sense to the scientific community at the time, but but his calculations and his experiments answered absolutely every objection that was thrown at him. The world of theology has its unsolved puzzles too. Like, like how, how do you explain the Trinity? How do you and I get our minds around the Trinity? I mean, we see evidence throughout the scripture. We see that, that God is called Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and yet, and, and yet we hold to, to one God. We, we don't have a number of gods. We have one God, but revealed in three distinct personalities. How on earth do we reconcile that? How, how do you get your, your head around the concept of, of eternity? Eternity past and eternity future. How on earth do you get your mind around that kind of stuff? And just because we can't get our heads fully wrapped around it, and just because we can't adequately explain it all away, doesn't mean that it's not true. Doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's a paradox. It's a mystery. We have to become comfortable as Western North American Christians with the mysteriousness of God and the things of God. We've, we've just got to, get, we've got to get over it in some respects and learn to live with some of these mysterious, paradoxical things that we see. We can't explain everything away. How, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God in election and human beings free will, and choice. And that's where we find ourselves this morning as we come to Romans chapter 10. Let, re let me remind you just really super high level of, of where we are in the book of Romans because last week we had a break and uh, another bald guy was here preaching. And, um, and so it was two weeks ago that, that Pastor John was, was, was taking us continuously through Romans. So just really high level in case you've forgotten you know, where we are in, in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, really high-level outline, 
really high bird's eye view, it looks like this. In, in Romans chapters 1 through 8, you, you really have Paul weaving a, a theolog- theological argument for salvation. What does salvation look like? Starts off right in, in chapter 1 and verse 17. He says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So right at the start of, of Romans chapter 1 and all the way through to the end of chapter 8, where he finishes off chapter 8 by saying, nothing therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and then what Paul does is he takes a, a little bit of a, an interlude, and that's Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And what he does in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is he just begins to focus in on nation Israel for a second because he's been explaining salvation. And then he has to kind of go, I'm just going to take a little time out, and I need to talk to I- about Israel for a second because inquiring minds need to know about Israel. So 9, 10, and 11, he does that. And then in Romans chapter 12, from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 16 to the very end... Paul gets really practical and he says, look, okay, so what? (laughs) In light of everything that you've heard so far, in light of one through eight, in in this theology of salvation, and in light of what God is doing, has done, and will do with nation Israel, what what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? And that's why Romans, you know, chapter, chapter 12 and verse one starts with this great verse, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, in light of one to eight, and in light of nine, 10, and 11, I want you to live this way. So that's really kind of high level. Now, now let me kind of zoom in a little bit on Romans 9, 10, and 11, because that's kind of where we find ourselves currently. Here, here's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about. Again, just so that we don't lose our way, so, so that we keep you know, the, the, the picture really, really clear, let me just kind of just run through this, this really brief summary. In Romans 9, the focus is on Israel's past. And you remember Pastor John talked about that two weeks ago, where, where he talked about how God had dealt and with, with, with Moses and Abraham and, and, and all that God had done in nation Israel in the Exodus and all of that kind of stuff. In Romans chapter 10, as we'll see today, the focus is really on uh, Israel's present. What, what is God doing right now in nation Israel at the time of Paul's writing? And then in Romans chapter 11, it's all about the, the, the future orientation. What is Israel's future, and what is the future going to look like for Israel? What, what's the big idea of Romans 9? Well, the big idea of Romans chapter 9 is all about selection. It's all about selection. God chose a people for himself. The big idea of Romans chapter 10 is about rejection, and that's what we're going to see today, that Israel rejected God. Israel rejected the Messiah. And that had some implications for both Israel, but also for us. And as we'll see next week, uh, when I talk about this, we'll see about the, the real uh, big ideas on Israel's restoration in Romans chapter 11. What do we appeal to in Romans 9? In, in Romans 9, we appeal to God's sovereignty. It, it's all about God being in control of all things. In Romans chapter 10, as we'll see today, it's about God's fairness appealing to the fairness of God. And then uh, in Romans chapter 11, we'll be talking about God's faithfulness. The theology or the doctrine that we're looking at in each one of them is also different. In Romans chapter 9, it was all about election, all about God's choice, about election. In, in Romans chapter 10 today, it's really about human responsibility. 
The, the fact that we have been given free choice, that we have been, been given the ability and, and the right and the privilege to make some choices, to make some decisions, because we're created uh, in the image of God. And so that's what it's all about. And then next week, what we'll see is that it's all about eschatology, which is really, um, you know, fancy way theologians say of uh, the study of future things. What's God going to do in the future? And that's really where the focus comes. And I wanted you to see that because we just don't want to lose our way as we're in the middle of this discussion. We have to understand it in its context of the whole book. And we have to understand that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are just kind of like there's parentheses around Romans 9 through 11. Paul wants to talk about salvation, and he's going to talk about how to live, but he's got to deal with some things just in the middle because they're really important things. And so we find ourselves right in the middle of that in Romans chapter 10 today. So today we want to turn our attention to Romans chapter 10. And we're just going to share with you some highlights from Romans chapter 10 and what I think Romans 10 has to say to me and to you who are here this morning and to those who are going to be watching online. In verses 1 through 7 and then verses 16 through 19, there's a little chunk in 16 through 19, Paul focuses on Israel's rejection of God's righteousness as revealed through Jesus Christ. Israel rejected the righteousness of God, in a number of different ways, Paul points out in these verses. Let me kind of highlight them for you. Israel rejected God in, in this way, first of all, by turning to religiosity instead of a relationship with God. In, in Romans chapter 10, the first two verses, Paul says this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the, for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul is repeating here his, his great love, his great heartache for the nation Israel, for the people that he loves so dearly, the people of his own heritage, that he just, his heart just goes out to them so strongly. He says, again, I just, I, I wish that all Israel would turn to God, but they haven't. That's what he talked about, remember, in verse 9, when he said those words, that, that he, he almost wished that he himself could lose his own salvation if it meant that all Israel would be saved. Like, that really tells you something about the heart condition of a person. When they're, when they're willing to forfeit their own souls for the sake of a whole group of other people. Paul knew that, that the Jewish people had rejected God. And he points to the zeal of his people, but the zeal not for God, but for their religion. They, they weren't really interested in a relationship with God. They had walked away from their relationship with God, and they had turned to religiosity. Now, Paul knew this very well because he himself knew his own story. You remember the Apostle Paul's story? It's pointed out for us in the book of Acts. Paul was out persecuting. He was zealous for what he thought was his faith. He, he was really zealous for a religious system. It wasn't God's name that he was really that concerned about. It was that a group of people had turned away from that religious system and were following a new thing called the way. And Paul had gotten letters and he had gone to persecute them, to kill some of these people. But while he was on his way to Damascus, suddenly he met the risen Christ. And isn't it important what Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my system of the law? Is that what the Lord said? No. Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting a, a brand new religion? 
It's, it's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's, it's me, Saul, that you're persecuting. See, Paul was full of zeal, but he was ignorant. He didn't have knowledge. He didn't have a proper understanding. And the Jewish people in Paul's day and in ours are zealous for God and his law. But here Paul says that it's, that it's all heat and no light. They're basing their salvation on their religion. But religion has never saved anyone. God never wanted people to, to, uh, to be in a religious system. God didn't create you and me for religiosity. He created us for relationships. That's what God wants. He wants a relationship with people. He doesn't want us to adhere to a set of rules and regulations. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Have you ever heard people say, you know, it, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? Sincerity isn't enough. It's never enough to save you. And that's what Paul is saying here. The people of his day, the Jewish people, they were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Lots of cults in our day are sincere, and they're zealous. But if we read the Scripture, they're wrong according to the Scriptures. This week I read about a young girl who was dying from a liver disease. And after her story aired, some people called in to, to help her out to donate a liver. You only have one liver, you understand? And you need it to live? See, people were zealous. They wanted to help out. But it was zeal that wasn't based on knowledge. Paul also says that Israel rejected God because they tried to base their salvation on good works. In verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The key words in these verses are that they sought to establish their own. The, the Jews tried to save themselves by doing good works. Now, Paul has already devoted two chapters of Romans to say that you cannot find salvation through good works. Chapters 3 and 4. Go back to the podcast and listen to John's messages on, on those particular passages. But Paul doesn't need to say much more on it here other than mention it. But, but he does add something, and he says this in addition. He adds that Jesus is the culmination of the law. Now, some of the older translations use the word end. Jesus is the end of the law. I, I like the translation that says culmination better. J Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, the Apostle Paul is saying here, and he's argued elsewhere already about this. He didn't come to throw it out, but he came to end the law by fulfilling it, by bringing it to completion. He's the culmination of the law. Another way that Israel rejected God's righteousness, is that they actually misunderstood the law, and particularly the purpose of the law. Look at verses 5 through 7. Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What's Paul saying here? <laughs> well, what on earth is he trying to get across? 
Well, well, here's what he's doing. He's quoting Moses, who was the recipient of the law and who then turned around and gave the law to the people. And because he's got a Jewish, because the focus is on Israel, right? Because he's got a particularly Jewish audience in mind, he says, look, I'm going to quote the law from Moses. And he quotes from both Leviticus and Deuteronomy here. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because then he says, it's all about Jesus. When Moses said this, he was really referring to Jesus. When Moses said this in Leviticus, he was really referring and making a reference to the future coming of Messiah. When Moses said this in Deuteronomy, he had in mind the future Messiah that would come. It's really all about Jesus. And that's the point that he's trying to make here. You have rejected Jesus, but you have tried to adhere to the law. You're not getting it. No one ever gets saved by trying to understand and keep the law. It's impossible to do. And the law was never given for that purpose, Paul is saying. The law was always intended to point to someone else. And that someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the law, Paul says. And if you're trying to live by the law, you're never going to make it. Because it's impossible to do that. The final rejection that Paul points out in these opening verses is that Israel also rejected because they refused Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah in verses 16 through 19. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. God set aside nation Israel because they didn't accept or embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul asks two questions in these verses. The first question that he asks is this, did they hear about Jesus? Did nation Israel hear about Jesus? And, and his answer is, of course they did. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, it says elsewhere in, in, in the scripture. And then secondly, he asks, okay, well, if they have heard about Jesus, did, was it because they didn't understand about Jesus? And again, his answer is, of course they understood they even got jealous that the Gentiles were beginning to accept the message. They even got jealous that those who, who were non-Jews were actually coming to faith. They even got ticked about it, he says. But instead of actually joining in the party, they just took their ball and went home. They, re they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. God's chosen people, the objects of his special attention, based on his sovereign election, have rejected Jesus, and so God has set them aside for a season. Now, we'll pick that up next week. So Paul needs to move on. And he moves on in this 10th chapter, and he begins to talk about the universal nature of the gospel the universal nature of the gospel of Jesus. See, Paul anticipates the questions that his readers would have at this point. You know, if Israel has been set aside, if the Jews got it wrong, then, then what are the rest of us to do? 
What are the implications for us? If God's special chosen people, if God revealed himself to these people and they messed it up, what on earth are the rest of us to do? And so Paul wants to address that now. And he launches into a series of verses that have profound implications for all people all over the world throughout all of history and for every one of us who are sitting here this morning. These verses have profound implications for us. He speaks of the universal nature of the gospel. He focused in, in verses 8 through 10, first of all, on the possibility of the gospel. In verse 8, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and that you are saved. What Paul is, is doing wonderfully well, and I, I love what Paul does. You know, he takes chapters 1 through 8 to develop a theology of salvation. And all of the arguments and all of the imagery that he uses. And then he comes in here and he says, look, let me just kind of boil it down to you for, with like two verses. Just so that you get it. See, you know what? It's kind of like the Coles Notes version. Honestly, Coles Notes is what got me through high school English. It, it, you know, as soon as the syllabus come out, I would look at the books that I had to read. A lot of them didn't even have pictures in them. And I would look at the books, and the first thing I would do is I would go, because you couldn't go online in those days, um, I would go to the bookstore and see if there were Coles notes. If there were Coles notes, I was going to pass that English course. If there were no Coles notes, I had to resort to other tactics. As a last resort, read the book. But so Paul, so Paul comes down, for all you English teachers, I'm really sorry. Okay. Um, but um, so Paul boils it right down in here. And he says, look, you, you want to understand what salvation is all about? And he just says it this way. He just says, look, let me, let me just give you the Coles Notes version of it. Becoming a Christian isn't about religiosity or keeping a set of rules or taking a class or even joining a church. Just two things. Just two things. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's it. That's the summary of, of chapters 1 through 8. But, but I said that the gospel is a possibility because we can't miss the little word at the start of verse 9 because it's a vitally important little word. It's the word if. If. If you confess with your mouth. If you believe in your heart. See, the gospel is a possibility. But how we react to it is really what makes all of the difference. You know, some people will do one or the other, but not both. But notice that it's belief. Belief in what? Belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you know, that's what most other world religions and most other cults get wrong when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. It's belief in the resurrection power of Jesus, that, that death couldn't hold Jesus. Because he lived a sinless life, because he was God incarnate, death couldn't hold him, and he rose from the dead, and that's what makes all the difference in our faith. Do you believe it? Do you believe it in your heart? See, see that's what's being asked of us here. But not only that, have you confessed with your mouth? 
Have you confessed what? Have you confessed that Jesus is your eternal fire insurance? That's not what it says. It's not what Paul is trying to get at. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord, got to remember Romans chapter 6. He is the master and I am the slave. And if you can never get to the place in your life, having believed in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, but if you can never come to the place in your life where you say, it's all about you and it's not about me, I surrender everything that I have and am to you, then you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. And so there's the possibility of salvation. But thank God also there's the availability of salvation. Look at verses 11 through 13. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who then can actually be saved? Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who believes and makes a confession of faith. Everyone who understands the resurrection power of Jesus. And everyone who's willing to bend their knee and say that Jesus is in control of my life. Everyone who does that can be saved. This, friends, is the other side of the coin from Romans chapter 9. On one side, we have God's sovereign election, God's choice. But on the other side of the coin, we have our human choice to respond to the availability and the possibility of salvation. And that's the tension, and that's the paradox, and that's the mystery that we've got to learn to live with. The last thing that God, I think, ever wants us to do is to get entrenched in one camp over here or another camp over here and just start slinging stones at each other. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. In verse 12, he says that salvation is not based on ethnicity. It's not based on what church you grew up in. It doesn't matter what school you attend, and it doesn't even really matter who your parents were. God's righteousness comes by faith to all who believe in their heart and all who confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord and Savior of the world. And it'd be great if we could just kind of camp there and just hang out there for a long time. Like, wouldn't it be just kind of cool if, if you kind of got that message and you kind of believed it and then poof, you're just gone. Just gone to heaven. Woo! Just gone. But you see, that hasn't happened. God's left us here. And he's left us here because there's another aspect to the gospel that's so vitally important, and that's responsibility. In verses 14 and 15. How then, Paul says, how then can they call on the name that, uh, sorry, how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Is there a responsibility for all of us who have believed the message and are saved? 
Is there a responsibility for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ? Is there a reason that God has left us here on this planet? You bet there is. You bet there is. Paul says, look, people are saved when they call on the name of the Lord. But how can they do that if they've never heard? Like, how how do you call on the name of Jesus if you've never heard about him? And, And how can people actually hear Unless actually someone goes and shares it with them. And and Paul uses the word preach here, but it's not the normal word that's used in the New Testament where it's kind of like what I'm doing here this morning. It's not the paid professional kind of preaching thing. It's really more a sharing kind of an idea. It's a kind of a different use of the word. And he says, so how can people then hear if somebody doesn't go and tell them? And how can somebody go tell them unless they're sent? I think what Paul is trying to get across to us here is that our responsibility to the gospel is to be involved in evangelism, both locally and around the world. You know, I, I so appreciated the passion of Tony Campolo last week. I mean, you just listen to the guy, and, and he's, just, he's just oozing passion. And, and you know, he's, he's a bit older than me, and so I, I appreciate that a guy who's a bit older than me is still setting the way, still paving the way, still an example to a relatively younger guy like me. You know, not, some of you know that, that just a week ago I got back from Africa and, and was spending some time. I volunteered with a mission organization. And, you know, while I was there, I was there with just a great team of people and, and just showing them the work that we're doing and asking for their advice and their input and some of the things that we're doing. And so we were up in the north of Uganda where, where for years, Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army had wreaked havoc. They've kind of moved out of the area now. But for years up in that area, they, they, would, they would go into villages and they would kill the men in the village. They would rape all of the women in the village and they would steal all the boys and use them as soldiers. And so I was able to go up with our team to some of the villages that this happened in. And and the very small ministry work that I'm involved with, you know, we are supporting 150 widows of war, women who have all been raped. Some of them have children due to those rapes. Their husbands are all dead, and some of their children are missing. And and while we were up there and we were ministering to them and, and we had a great time with them for like three days, I began to get a bit discouraged and I, I, just, I just remember being discouraged and going, you know, God, like, are we, are we really making a difference? Like, there's so many people. That's just Uganda. There's, there's thousands, there's hundreds of thousands of people. And I was just like, God, you know, is it really worthwhile what I'm doing? And then we went down back into Kampala, into the center, which is the capital, which is down in the south. And and, and we spent a Saturday morning with 80 refugees, almost all women, people who've had to flee their own countries and, and who've come in. And, and there was one woman th- that just particularly kind of gripped my heart. Um, I can't say even publicly a lot of the details, but she and her husband and their family had to leave their country. The husband somehow made it to Canada. I don't even know how he made it to Canada. And he's here right now in Canada. She's still there trying to join him in Canada. They had to leave their own homeland because um, if they go there, they will be killed. 
And, and if, they, if those who are seeking them out know where she is right now, um, they will find her and kill her. And so she was moving right after, the day after we met with her, because now her location had been jeopardized. And so I met with this woman and her 11 children. She, she has 14, but three of them she doesn't know where they are. And she just lives by faith every day. And she lives in fear every day. And I was thinking, we're really making a difference. And then Tony spoke last week. And he said, you know what, for that person you are. <laughs> Remember he told his story about the three little girls? For that person we're making a difference. Even for that week or ten days that we were there, we made a difference. We were able to bless her and encourage her and be a source of protection for her. Why am I telling you this? Because how are people ever going to hear unless someone's sent? And you and I, we just fall into one of two categories. Either you're the person that's sent or you're sending someone. I mean, we just need to get on with it. And we need to get on with what we're doing here at C4 because we exist to make disciples of people here at C4. We want people to come to know Jesus and we want people to become like Jesus and we want to do that here at home in the Durham region and we want to do it everywhere that God has called us. And we're not going to reach the whole world but we can make a difference in some people's lives. Are we in or not? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in, and we need to be all the way in on this because this is vitally important because when you bow the knee and you say, Jesus is Lord, I give up my agenda and you give up your agenda. I hope you understand that that's what it means. And when you give up your own agenda, you take on his agenda. And we need to get really serious about this stuff. Now, we've got programming, we've got other stuff, but you know what? You know what my title is. Here we go. Executive pastor hat just goes on now. Not preaching anymore, just putting the executive pastor hat on. Where's our money, folks? I went away for three weeks and the wheels fell off. I don't know what happened. I came back and I got shocked. Because our giving has just tanked in the months of January and February. It's a disaster right now. We need to do something. We're either all in or we're not. We can't play games. We're not playing games. There's too much at stake. And we just, we really need to get serious about this. So if you're a visitor, forgive me, welcome visitors, we love you. I'm talking to the family right now, okay? You, you guys go and have your barbecue or whatever you're going to do, and we just do the family stuff over here. Because your family fights too, I've heard about it. Anyways, I'm totally joking, totally joking. Okay, I need to move on because I'm just going to get really passionate about this stuff. But I need to move on. Look, Paul finishes this great chapter, chapter 10, this way. There's good news for everybody. There really is good news for everybody. There's something in this passage for everyone who's here today. You know, sometimes when somebody's, you know, there's a sermon, and the sermon's on marriage, and you go, oh, you know what, not marriage. Click, off it goes. I'm not even listening anymore. Or, you know, we're talking about giving, and you're like, I tossed my money in, so I don't even have to, it's not, not for me. Not applicable to me. This message is for everybody. The good news is for everybody. It's for the Gentiles. Look at chapter 10 and verse 20. Paul concludes with these two verses. But he says, first of all, this. 
And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Who's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the non-Jews. He's saying, look, this good news is for everybody. It's for the Gentiles. One of the, the huge benefits that you and I have in the setting aside of Israel for a temporary season is that the gospel, the goodness of Christ, has come to me and come to you. How many of us here are non-Jews? Please, hands. We should be thankful this morning. We need to be thankful, people, because God has allowed the gospel, the good news, to come to us. And that's good news for everybody who's here this morning. But the good news is not just for us, it's also for the Jews. Because in verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this, But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The good news is also for the Jews. The good news has always been for God's chosen people, his favored nation. He has temporarily set them aside, but as we'll see next week, he is not finished, he is not done with nation Israel. So then the question becomes, what's our responsibility? What is our accountability? Well, first of all, if you're here this morning and you are what we would call a seeker around here, if you are someone who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is a responsibility that we have. God still holds his hands out to you, even today. But you have a responsibility. There is a human choice that you need to make. Please don't harden your heart against the message of salvation. Please do not harden your heart like Pharaoh did, as we saw in chapter 9, where Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his own heart, and then God said, I am done with you, I now harden your heart. God is reaching out, even this morning, to some of you who are here, and saying, will you not please respond to my message of salvation? It is available for you. But what's our responsibility as disciples? Because as Christians, as Christ followers, we also have responsibility. See, there's great assurance for those of us who already trust Christ. As we hold in tension God's sovereign election and our personal responsibility. You know, first, we, we rest secure in the fact that our relationship with God cannot be severed by our unfaithfulness. That's what Romans chapter 9 was all about. Yet inhibited? Absolutely. But severed or dissolved? No. And we also rest secure in the fact that the salvation of others is a work of God, that he accomplishes it, that I and you cannot change a human heart, but that God can change a human heart. But that does not ever negate our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to take the good news of the gospel to all nations. So specifically, because I love to be practical, as disciples, let me just share three thoughts. We need to have some care, some share, and some prayer. It just kind of worked for me. <clears throat> First is that we, we just must care enough for the souls of other people. Like Paul in Romans chapter 9 and, and verse 1 of this particular chapter, the guy's heart is unbelievable. Do we care? Do we really care enough to love lost people and to tell them about Jesus? Or to send others to tell them about Jesus? We must leave our comfort zones to proclaim the gospel. We must care enough to deny ourselves, to give our resources, to not live in peace and luxury while other people are going to hell. We must also care, or share 
We must share the gospel faithfully, doing it ourselves and enabling others to do it through supporting ministries like C4 and missions and our evangelistic efforts here at C4. And that's why finances, frankly, are so vitally important in this whole thing. We must share. And then finally, we must be in prayer, praying for renewal and revival and awakening in our area, praying that the kingdom of God would break through in our region and around the world. Pray that blind minds will see and deaf souls will hear. I end with a, just a personal illustration. I became a Christian as a junior high student. I was around 11 or 12. For 25 years or so after that, I prayed for my mom and dad. They were not Christians. I used to take them to Billy Graham crusades. Or at least I would ask them all the time to go. My dad never went. My mom came to one, I remember, in Exhibition Stadium. Long time ago. I invited them to church regularly. When the church would do special events, I would always come and ask my mom and dad. Even after Jen and I were married and I had long since moved out, I would always call them up and invite them to special events. But they never came. When I got baptized... They didn't show up. When I became a pastor, they wouldn't even come and hear me preach. For 25 years, I begged. I prayed. I wept. Through all the ups and downs of our relationship and of life, I kept asking my mom and dad, please, please come. Please, please come. But they never did. Then one Sunday I was preaching in Niagara Falls and unexpectedly my parents showed up. I was quite shocked. That particular morning I was preaching on the condition of the human heart and its relationship to accepting the word of God. For those of you who have been around a while, the parable of the soils. And at the end of that service, my mom and dad gave their life to Jesus. So today I stand and I say, thank you, God, that your sovereign election included them, but it never negated my human responsibility. Never negated my begging and my pleading and my situational working, (laughs) my meddling and my weeping and my praying. And not just of me, but of a whole church community that was concerned about my mom and dad. God's sovereign election is a good thing. It's a doctrine of assurance for for those of us who believe. But on the other side of the coin is human responsibility. Everyone needs to hear, and everybody needs a chance to respond. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? Let's pray together. You know, Lord... um, uh, yeah, first of all, Lord, um, you know, if I got too excited there, forgive me. But God, you know how passionate I am about, um, about this thing called the gospel and just the, the resources that we need to do it. So God, I'm going to ask again, would you, please, would you please meet all of our needs through your people who you have blessed so wonderfully? 
But God, um, I want to pray for, for people who are here this morning who don't yet know you. And I just pray, God, that somehow you'll have taken the words that I've shared and just spoken to their hearts. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love, God, would you continue to lead us and guide us as a church? Would we get better and better at evangelism both here and around the world? And would you continue to help us to reach out to all people so that everybody has a chance to respond to the good news of Christ? And so we just pray for your strength and your help and your Holy Spirit's anointing in that. And we give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.